Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Friday, August the 27th. Uh, A terrorist group called ISIS-K has taken public credit for a pair of coordinated suicide bombings at the Kabul airport and an adjacent hotel, killing 12 U.S. Marines and one U.S. Navy medic and at least 90 Afghans. Many, many other people um, are in the hospital. Over a dozen U.S. Marines... um, Wounded, various um, casualties related to this event yesterday. And while the intelligence that we talked about yesterday warning Americans not to approach the airport and specifically to avoid the gates because there was a credible threat of a terrorist attack, um, while we knew this was coming, it was expected, there was not an adequate force present to protect our troops. That is what you are going to hear Um, I think most often in the readout related to uh, the errors that occurred in terms of the U.S. presence um, and why what happened yesterday happened. There was an inadequate force present to protect our troops. We we did not have a defensible perimeter because we are uh, trying to use a civilian airport instead of the airbase that we built in Bagram. So that is what I think you are going to hear most often. Um, But from a Christian worldview, I think we need to focus in on the sacrifice of these 13 U.S. military members for a moment. Our, Our grief is deep for their families. As a family who got a phone call from Afghanistan, Um, about a a wounded Marine over an Easter weekend some 10 years ago, um, I can tell you that it is, the waiting is awful. The not knowing is terrible. And then I think for these families, the knowing is even worse. Our Marine came home. Um, He lives uh, a joyful, productive life today, but he bears in his body the wounds. Now, only a Christian worldview provides a way to count the weight of the sacrifice that these families have made and that these individuals have made, the sacrifice of one life for the saving of others. And let me just say here that if the president of the United States was going to use the Bible to talk about what happened yesterday, um, one appropriate reference might have been to the kind and the quality of love that's demonstrated by the laying down of one's life for one's friends. That, That might have been a verse worthy of amplifying yesterday in his remarks. The Afghans who served alongside us and our coalition partners um, are the ones for whom these lives were laid down yesterday, the cause of freedom against the scourge of Islamic terrorism. These were our friends. These are the friends for whom the men and women of the U.S. military died yesterday. But it wasn't that verse or any such reference that the president chose. Instead, he chose a verse from the Bible 
uh, to highlight his remarks uh, five hours after uh, the events yesterday, I mean, after it, it, it actually a five-hour delay of his remarks. And he chose Isaiah 6, verse 8. Here I am, Lord, send me. And I just need to say here and now that his interpretation of that text as applied to the deadliest day for American troops since 2011, uh, well, well his, his interpretation of that text was this, quote, American military has been answering for a long time. Here I am, Lord, send me. Each one of these women and men of our armed forces are the heirs of that tradition of sacrifice, of volunteering to go into harm's way, to risk everything, not for glory, not for profit, not to defend what we love, uh, or, or but to defend the people we love and the people we love. Okay, and let me just say right here and now, that is a gross misapplication of that text. Isaiah 6, 8 has nothing to do um, with voluntarily putting oneself in harm's way um, not for profit, but to defend what we love and the people we love. Isaiah 6, 8 is the call of a prophet um, who recognized his own sinfulness and offered himself to go and speak on behalf of God to a people who ultimately would not listen. In the context um, of the vision of the prophet Isaiah, which can only be described as you know happening in the full ecstatic, ecstatic presence of the living God, the text reveals a process through which um, Isaiah's sin became known, his unclean lips were cleansed, purged, and then God sends him to a sinful people with a very specific message. And, and let me just say, I, I see no equivalency of this passage of Scripture applied to the U.S. military, a secular nation in the 21st century, going and doing really good things around the world but not doing so at the, at the express command of God. Nor are many, many members of the military even imagining that what they're doing is, is going in response to the call of God to bring people to repentance before the throne of the living God. That was Isaiah's call. Isaiah was sent to declare who God is and God's holiness before an unholy people. And when Isaiah asked, um, how long, how long will I need to declare this message? This is the context of Isaiah 6, verse 8, that the president chose to use yesterday to tell the world, hey, this is what we think is the verse that tells us what happened, tells us about what happened. When Isaiah asks in verse 11, how long, O Lord? God says this, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, a land desolate waste. The Lord will remove his people far away, and the forsaken places will be many in the midst of the land. And though a tent will remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. If you wanted a declaration of religious jihad between one people, uh, one faith perspective and another, Isaiah 6, 8, in its context of the rest of Isaiah 6, is a really good verse to lay down as a gauntlet. And, and the president, I mean, whether or not he understood what he was doing, when he declares, we will hunt you down and make you pay, we will not forgive, we will not forget, I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. Our commanders on the ground make it clear that we can and we must complete this mission, and we will. And that's what I ordered them to do. 
Um, we will not be deterred by terrorists. We will not let them stop our mission. We will continue uh, the evacuation. What people who are operating out of uh, the passion for Islamic Jihad heard is Isaiah 6-8 in its context, not ripped out of its context by the president in his speech yesterday. And in the end, I completely 100% agree with the president. The terrorists will not win. But we live in the mean times. And yesterday, the terrorists prevailed. I think it's time to sober up and let's handle the word of God rightly as we declare it in the midst of very contentious times. Next up, Steve West is back. He's the editor of World Magazine's Liberties Roundup. We'll be right back. All right. Joining us again today, Steve West. He is the editor of World Magazine's Liberties Roundup, um, which is a, a newsletter I think you should sign up for. And you can do so at WNG.org. That is World News Group. You know World Magazine. Mindy Bells joins us from time to time as well. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Glad to be here. All right. Let's um, let's hit some of the high points of uh, of the Liberties Roundup this week. Um, Let's start with the Biden administration's indication that they want to repeal a rule that protects university campus student religious groups. What's going on there? Certainly. You know, college campuses have sometimes been hostile places for religious student groups like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or Crew or Navigators or Business Leaders in Christ. And schools have tried to enforce non-discrimination rules against these groups, basically saying that these groups have to hire or not hire. These groups have to allow uh, non-Christians, people who don't subscribe to their faith statement, to be leaders in the group. You know, these groups are welcoming toward all students are able to, who are able to come to the meetings, but their leadership, they want to be in line with their statement of faith. That makes sense. And a number of uh, courts have recently sided with the campus groups and held that these students uh, can uh, have only leaders that subscribe to their statement of faith. There was a decision back in April involving Michigan's Wayne State University and then a couple of other rulings in respect to InterVarsity and Business Leaders in Christ at the University of Iowa. So these have been very good uh, decisions affirming the right of these students' groups to have leaders who subscribe to their statement of faith. But what's happening now is that the administration is indicating that it's reviewing a Department of Education rule passed during the Trump administration that said that colleges that receive federal funds had to treat religious groups the same as non-religious groups. That was a good rule passed by the Trump administration. This rule change, if it comes about, uh, is to to say that, no, you can't discriminate. You have to be able to, you have to have leaders who, um, leaders have to be able to be anyone, basically. They don't have to subscribe to your faith statement. And so if that revised rule comes about, it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that fares in the courts, because surely it will be challenged. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, that that can't groups on campus, whether they're secular or religious, can't have leaders who actually subscribe to their beliefs. So that's what's going on in respect to that. Um, Steve, I want to talk a little bit about critical race theory, civil rights and critical race theory and in unequitable, quote unquote, equity training. But let's take a very brief break. I'm talking with Steve West, 
from World News Group. You can find the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine's website, WNG.org. We'll be right back. All right, we all know that critical race theory and the teaching of it is a hotly debated issue in the culture today. Uh, My guest, Steve West, who is the editor of World Magazine's Liberties Roundup, reported on it this week. Um, Steve, what's going on with civil rights and critical race theory? Well, you know, I think every parent of a child in the public school system needs to pay attention to critical race theory. You know, I always tend to blur, kind of glaze over when we hear something like that. But just think of it this way. It's a theory. It's a teaching that has made its way into our public school system that says that American society at its core is racist. You know, whether we know it or not, uh, all white people are racist. And it teaches that. And it teaches that uh, basically everything that we know has to be torn down. Uh, it's not about treating everyone the same, but it's about teaching white people to hate themselves and black people to hate or fear white people. So one group is the oppressor and the other group is the oppressed. And so two cases that have recently been filed uh, really take on critical race theory. And I think both are worth paying attention to. One came out of Springfield, Missouri, where two school employees are challenging some mandatory training that they were put through. And I'll just give you a couple examples that give you a sense of what this was like. Uh, They were given a chart called an oppression matrix that invited them to identify their, quote, privilege. So this chart uh, provided the trainees identified white people, males, heterosexuals, rich people, and Protestants, among some others, as oppressors. And then another chart identified as covert white supremacy slogans such as all lives matter or color blindness or even the Trump campaign slogan, make America great. Then another exercise that they did over Zoom, it was live streamed. The trainees were told to hold up cards saying whether they agreed or disagreed with statements made by the instructor. But the two employees were told by their supervisor that that they could not disagree, that disagreement would be respectful. And if they opted out of the course, their pay would be docked. So essentially, you can't dissent uh, to this teaching. That's just one case. Uh, There's another case earlier this summer where an Illinois drama teacher said that the Evanston School District she was in directed teachers to participate in racially segregated affinity groups. So they split them up by black and white, and they required white teachers to denounce white privilege and to acknowledge that whiteness is inherently racist. And then when they tried to question the exercises or just um, voice a mild dissent, they were branded racist. You know, they don't allow dissent. And these same ideas were applied to the students who were divided up in the classroom by race. And this just causes them to identify each other first and foremost by race. This is really a divisive teaching that we need to pay attention to, uh, you know, it in the schools and parents need to be aware of what's going on. Steve, I think that um, it's also like at some level as Christians, one response to all of this, like that we need to comfortably grow into is to, without um, cowering and, and I don't know, slinking off as if we've been shamed into, into acknowledging that we're racist um, because I am white and I am Protestant and, and I, you know, I would by definition be privileged in in every way that is described through critical race theory. 
Um, and so, you know what I do? Wide-eyed, I just look right in the eye of the person accusing, accusing me of being a racist, and I say, okay, here is where I stand. I absolutely, wholeheartedly, with all that I am and all that I have, believe that God created us equally, that we stand on equal footing at creation, at the cross, and for those who have accepted and received Jesus Christ, we stand on equal footing in the kingdom of heaven. There's no question that every nation, every tribe, every tongue who bows the knee to Jesus stands on equal footing in the kingdom of heaven. And I am here to be an ambassador of that king and that kingdom. So if we can talk about that king and that kingdom, we can move the conversation forward. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is pervasive. It is real. We all suffer from it. And yes, racism is one of the gross effects, the gross effects of sin um, on humanity. So if we can have the conversation there, I think we can have a conversation. If, if, if it's weaponized in the form of critical race th- theory, we cannot have a conversation because a conversation is not allowed. Any, any dissent is just shoved to the side. I think what you've said is exactly true, Carmen. I think we need to make our points in that way. We need to to come from a, a Christian worldview as we approach it. We need to come in humility, but we don't need to come, uh, like you say, shrinking back from what's going on. You know, there are a number of states out there who have made some effort to bar uh, critical race theory from being in the schools. Like, for example, in Texas, schools are barred from teaching that any race is inherently superior to another or that an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist or sexist or oppressive. I mean, these things uh, in some ways make common sense to us, you know, but this is the kind of thing that we're confronting in schools. And the sad part of it is that the schools need to focus on educating kids to be successful in society. And these kinds of ideologically motivated battles really sideline real education. I guess, you know, the lesson that I draw from it is that you know, parents, you need to know what's being taught in your schools. You need to not just send your kids off there, but go there, find out what's being taught, visit the media center, look at the books that they have, look at the posters that are on the walls, uh, just ask questions and talk with teachers. And if something is wrong, you know, get involved. Uh, education is primarily the responsibility of parents, and they need to be involved, even when they delegate some of that to these schools to, to educate our children. Don't assume either that all the teachers are necessarily um, into this, uh, that they're doing it. Uh, sometimes they're under a lot of pressure uh, as well. But you can make a difference by showing up. It's a number of parents have at these school board meetings to talk about critical race theory. All right. Um, Steve has a really excellent piece posted right now at World. It's, uh, it's entitled Employees, quote-unquote, Equity Training Was Anything But?, Uh, Two recent lawsuits challenge race-based education. And we want you to read, um, well, I want you to read Steve's Liberties Roundup, uh, which you can also sign up to receive via your email at wng.org. Steve, we got like a minute for us to, um, to kind of do a quick roundup of what's happening in terms of mask and vaccine mandates. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's a lot to talk about there. And, of course, it's a contentious sort of debate. And there's a um, there are a lot of Christians with different opinions about both vaccines and mask mandates. I'll just mention one thing, though, and that's the mask mandates that are becoming more ubiquitous around the country. Once again, there's a Catholic school in Lansing, Michigan, that filed a lawsuit claiming that they, they had a theological objection to mask wearing by children in their school. And they argued that the masks were incompatible with teaching 
about children being made in God's image, that children needed to see the expressions of their teachers and other students, and not being able to see expressions interfered with learning Catholic doctrine. And they lost at the district court, and they lost a few days ago in an appeals court in a two-to-one ruling. But I just want to say, I don't think this is over. I think there is something to this. Uh, it's not just an annoyance to wear a mask for some people. Some people is very, uh, some Christians is very important, uh, and it's a matter of, of doctrine. So I think we'll see more of this in the future. Um, I also think that the the emerging conversation that will be interesting for us to have is what happens when a person um, says that their religion leads them to wear something that covers their face all the time. And are we going to say um, the same to them, that your religious conviction that says you are to cover or mask the image of God that might shine through, um, you are to mask that to others, would that stand up uh, or would that be knocked down in the same way that the the right to not wear a mask. You, you, see, you see where I'm going. I think there's a, a growing opportunity to have a religious liberties conversation that juxtaposes how one people group uses face coverings and other people groups do not. Exactly. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Interesting days. Man, we don't lack for interesting days. We do not. <laughs> That's Steve West. You can find him at World News Group, um, which is at WNG.org, affectionately known as World Magazine. He is the editor of their Liberties Roundup. We'll be right back. All right, up next, we've got Chris Martin and his Terms of Service newsletter. We're going to talk about... The responsibility of bearing one another's burdens, but also recognizing that we are, in fact, not God. It's a good opportunity for us to have a conversation about um, what we can bear and what God alone can bear. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The New Testament records the story Jesus told about a young man who left home, took his inheritance, and squandered it on everything he wanted. We call him the prodigal. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Maybe you have a prodigal in your home, a son that's wasteful, rude, or greedy, or a little drama queen who can throw the entire family into a tailspin with her outburst of selfishness. These are prodigals who've never left the house. Why? They're too comfortable. If I'm describing your home, you may want to make a few changes. Help him or her grow up through boundaries, consequences, and communication. In Jesus' story, the prodigal grows up and comes home. That's my prayer for your team as well. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Chris Martin. He's a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He's the author of the Terms of Service newsletter. He's working on a book, and he um, is really my go-to guy in terms of social media and its effects on me as a Christian in the marketplace of ideas today, but also the effects that social media has on the world we inhabit together. Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks again for having me, Carmen. Absolutely. So um, I loved the piece that you currently have posted at your Terms of Service um, 
newsletter, Bearing Burdens, Being Gods, We Can't Save the World, and That's Okay. <sighs> Talk with us about this reality. Sure. Uh, I was at lunch with a friend yesterday, and we were both kind of talking about how um, we, we've we just both seen, like, not been, like, closely personally affected by a ton of death recently, but we feel like we've been, like, you know, secondhand witnesses to too much death recently, um, whether it's the uh, attacks just yesterday in Afghanistan. Um, I tweeted the other day that I'm seeing more friends and family post on social media about their friends or family who are critically ill with COVID than I've seen, than I saw in all of 2020. Um, and so I'm just seeing more of that than I, than I have this whole pandemic. Um, you and I obviously had the floods here in the Nashville area last week that killed, I think 18 or 19 people. Um, there's just, I've, I've had a couple people that I used to work with who have passed away recently. So that, that, that I think is like contributing to my feeling of weariness. Um, but I think a lot of people are just feeling weary. And I think um, naturally because for good or for ill, I tend to think that our relationship with social media is at the heart of so many reasons why we feel or think or act the way we do these days. Uh, like if we're if we're looking at a social trend, like why are we why do people do this? Why do people argue more? Why are people polarized? Or why do we feel generally a little bit more down lately? My first my first question is going to be, well, in what ways would the internet and our relationship with the internet, social media in particular, make us feel these these ways? Uh, and often it's kind of easy to find the connection. Um, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is a super impactful book for me that I cite in my writing pretty frequently, Neil Postman wrote in 1985, he wrote this of the Telegraph. He hmm. said, the news elicits from you a variety of opinions about which you can do nothing, except offer them as more news about which you can do nothing. Prior to the age of telegraphy, the information action ratio was sufficiently close that most people had a sense of being able to control some of the contingencies in their lives. What people knew had some action value. Um, he says later in the book about uh, the the uh, world news, uh, like the, the evening news broadcast, he says that um, – we we have we don't have any evidence. Uh, he says it's not been yet demonstrated whether or not a culture can survive if it takes the measure of the world in 22 minutes. You know, referring to a 30 minute evening news broadcast with eight minutes of commercials interspersed. And I would say uh, it has not yet been determined whether or not a culture can survive if it takes the measure of the world in a brief scroll of Twitter or Facebook. Mm. Um, and I, I think a lot of us. I've, the term has been called popularly doom scrolling. Um, and I think a lot of us, we hop on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, whatever our uh, drug of choice is, I suppose you could say. We hop on our preferred social media platform in our free time while we're waiting in the in the lobby to get our hair cut or at the doctor's office or to pick our kid up from school or while dinner's in the oven or whatever else. And we are, we just hop on to look at funny videos or to see pictures of family or to read an interesting article or whatever else. But what we don't realize um, is what that habit does to us over a long period of time. It's kind of like eating poorly. Um, 
I love my fair share of pizza, but if I if I just like grabbed a pizza piece of pizza, you know, if if somehow I had a little pizza warmer in my kitchen and I could just grab a random piece of pizza whenever I had some downtime and kind of felt a little hungry, um, it might feel good and taste good in the moment. And I'm not looking to get unhealthy, but man, if I did that every day when I had a free five minutes and a little stomach grumble here or there, that would really add up to some poor health over time. But but we wouldn't really think of that necessarily. We wouldn't think of the long term. Uh, sort of collective um, effects of of doing something like that. And I really think that's what happens when we scroll on social media constantly is we we feel like there are all these problems in the world and they end up having a lot greater effect on our mental and spiritual health uh, than we realize. And and I think it's a huge problem, not only for mental and mental health, but for spiritual health. I think that we may have this sort of insatiable interest in the world's injustices because it makes us feel a little bit more like gods ourselves, which is really our original sin in the garden. The social internet sort of becomes a virtual tree of knowledge of good and evil. It opens our eyes to the harsh realities of the world fractured by sin and fools us into attempting to bear the burdens of the world and which we're, we we're not able to bear. Um, and so I think, I don't know. I, I think that in a lot of ways, our relationship with social media has necessarily opened our eyes to injustices of many kinds and and problems with authority or, or whatever else. Um, I think there there is some good there. But I also think it can make us feel like we need to be saviors rather than relying on the savior himself. So I'm wondering, um, particularly as you describe the pizza, right? Going, you know, like, what do we grab? What's our go-to grab? Um, have you read Brett McCracken's The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Postmodern World or Post-Truth World? Yes. Uh-huh. Maybe is the title. Okay. So I just, well, because yeah. that's the image that came to mind, right? Where, where we should have as the foundation of our feasting, like the major portion should be the Bible. And, you know, and then we should work our way up to this tiny, tiny, tiny little serving of like, you know, in a, in a food pyramid, it would be like, you know, healthy fats, right? Or some sort of sure. sugar indulgence. And that's where the Internet or social media belong. But in reality, if we were to actually write down how much time we spend um, consuming these various sources, that pyramid in most people's lives has been c- completely inverted. And they're getting a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of the Bible, and they're getting a huge, massive serving of the social Internet. Yeah, and and I think um, I was just writing about this this morning for a column, uh, and I think part of the reason is we all started using the social internet however long ago. For me, it was in like two thousand five, six, seven, early days of MySpace, Twitter, Facebook. Um, maybe for some, it was just ten years ago. You know, twenty eleven or whatever. Farmville got you on Facebook or something like that, and. Um, I think a lot of us started out using it just like, oh, this is a neat little novel way of connecting with other people. Um, but I think what we all what we need to remember, and this is why I harp on it all the time, is these social media platforms and the math that undergirds them, the algorithms, are designed to make us feel good. They want to make us feel comfortable. They, if if we want to keep going with the food analogy, they deliver comfort food of the mind. That's the whole point. They're mm. not designed to challenge us, to make us think critically. They're not designed to to make us wonder if we if our perspective on the world is accurate or valid. They are designed to make us feel good. And I think that over time, 
what's happened is we've developed an appetite only for things that make us feel good mentally, spiritually, because we've been engineered by these platforms because because of our totally innocent use of these platforms. We're not we don't go on there being like, I don't want to be challenged. I only want to read things that tell me I'm right and make me feel good. We don't think that. We just hop on and that's what's delivered to us. So we sort of only develop a taste for those things. So then when we come to the hard truths of scripture, we're like, why would I read this hard thing that's kind of difficult to understand and makes me feel a little less good about myself when I could just scroll on Facebook and be affirmed in everything I think and believe? And that just becomes what we have a taste for. And we no longer have a taste for anything that makes us feel uncomfortable or challenged or wrong in any way. And I think that's sort of the like deformity of our taste, the disordering of our priorities. And and that's I've talked with a number of pastors who who are having trouble leading their churches these days. And and I think that's at the heart of it. Turkish delight in Narnia. Maybe you could work that yeah. in. All right. Hey, we yeah, gotta take a very good. brief break. When we come back, we're gonna continue our conversation with Chris Martin. We're going to um, pivot to a conversation about Facebook and Facebook's transparency report. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Throw me like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter, pour me in your cup. That is some music from the Chosen series, which I love. All right, um, Chris Martin. Hey, Chris, before we jump into a new topic, let me uh, share with you what Susan has contributed to the conversation via the text line. Remember, if you're listening, you can always text in during the show, 877-933-2484. Susan says, I can only handle news if I use the news as clues for specific prayer points. Without praying and lifting these heavy things to God, I get too weighed down. Amen. Amen, Susan. I call it yeah. uh, hashtag pray the news, putting those things in the hands of the one who can handle them, because I certainly cannot. So great, uh, great insights there, Susan. Thanks for sharing those. Chris, let's um, let's look at uh, this piece about Facebook's transparency report. Uh, first of all, what is Facebook's transparency or content report and why do you find it or why does actually the author who we're both reading, Ethan Zuckerman, find it so strange? Yeah, so um, Facebook released a transparency report for quarter two uh, content uh, this past week. And um, it was kind of bizarre. Well, it was bizarre for a few reasons. But we have to start back uh, back in 2020, July of 2020. Uh, Kevin Roos, who's a tech columnist for The New York Times, one of the best tech writers out there, I think. He does such a good job asking the right questions of so much of technology in general, social media specifically. He started a Twitter feed uh, called um, Facebook Top 10 or something like that, that that was that would detail the top 10 performing Facebook links uh, every day based on data provided through a uh, app that Facebook owned called CrowdTangle. And so he would tweet out every evening, um, here's a list of the top 10 uh, pages who got I think it's pages who got the most engagement in the last day or whatever um, and a lot of Facebook uh, and and what that what the account showed uh, because it was just it was really the Twitter account was just a bot pulling data from Facebook uh, showing hey here are the top 10 best performing pages for the last uh, day and what the bot showed was that virtually every day the top 10 performing pages were really conservative Facebook pages. 
um, everything from Fox News, which is like kind of typical to more like almost far right ish kind of stuff. And um, and Facebook got really upset at this journalist who set up this bot because what the bot was revealing was that the most engaged Facebook content was content that Facebook isn't particularly proud of having on their platform at the time it was often vaccine stuff or covid perhaps misinformation or, or things like that and so facebook kind of felt embarrassed so facebook said hey we're going to actually shut down this crowd tangle app that was giving people insight into what content was performing well hmm. uh, and we're going to start releasing our own transparency report to show you what we think is the most engaged content on facebook um, to show you what and, we want and, you to see <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, so they started releasing this report in quarter two this year. So they just released one recently. And everyone was like, wait, what? this is quarter two's report of the best performing content. And some of the top performing content was just really bizarre um, stuff that was like this obscure, uh, like athletic clothing company that nobody had ever heard of. And just all these these uh, top pages that nobody had even heard of before. And we were, everybody was a little bit confused as to what they were even trying to say. Well, people started asking questions. Where's quarter one? Where's the quarter one transparency report? And actually, Facebook um, didn't publish a quarter one transparency report. They were going to. And then when they created it and prepared it for publishing, they realized that they didn't really like what was on it and decided not to publish it. Uh, because it showed a lot of the same data that that journalist Kevin Roos's bot was showing before a lot of uh, questionable information about vaccines or COVID in general or, or things like that. And so um, they, they actually Facebook in an attempt to show transparency here in the second quarter of the year um, really got themselves in some hot water because they intentionally shelved their quarter one report. Uh, Ethan Zuckerman, who wrote this article we're talking about, obviously no relation to Zuckerberg, though it's a funny coincidence, the names. Um, he's a professor at UMass Amherst uh, in Massachusetts, and he studies this stuff for a living. He studies social trends and, and technology and internet, social media. Um, and he was really concerned that this is, he, he said, I'm not, I don't want to be cynical and say that this is transparency theater, but it certainly feels like transparency theater because Facebook has said, well, that top 10 report that was on that Twitter account, that's measuring engagement. And what we're really interested in is measuring reach. And anyone who works in social media knows that engagement is a more important statistic than reach because engagement shows interest. It shows intent. shows like, man, people liked that content or they shared it. It really shows what people are interested in. And reach just says, oh, this content showed up in front of people's eyes and it showed up on their feeds. We don't know if they liked it or if they shared it or anything. Reach just says, oh, it showed up in, in front of as many people as possible, in front of lots of people. And so Facebook was like, well, we want to show the content that gets the most engagement. And all of us who kind of watch Facebook and how they release data are like, we think you know, we think we know that the reason you don't want to show what gets the most engagement is because it maybe looks bad on Facebook or presents a story of what people are engaging with that you don't want to be out in the world. So it just comes back for me, uh, this conversation I don't trust Facebook to evaluate itself. And I mm -hmm. think we should all ask questions when Facebook is reporting on the health of its own platform. I, I really, not even just Facebook. I mean, oh, platforms in general are going to be biased about the health of their own platform. But Facebook has routinely showed that they're more interested in presenting a 
uh, pleasant self-image than presenting the truth. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind. So there's a um, a group out there called Ministry Watch. And so this is this sort of gets to the question of not just what do for-profit companies like Facebook say about themselves, um, what do we like to report on ourselves, but the same is true for ministries. And so, um, you know, I rely on folks who are taking a hard look, not not in order to, you know, like always be picking out the pepper, but because we are most likely to only report good news about ourselves. We're, we're most likely to yeah, for sure. find all the really good things to say about who we are and what we're doing. And sometimes, you know, we need to take a sober look at, um, you know, at the darkness because God still needs to be cleansing and um and redeeming and healing and making better. So this applies to ministries as well as to for-profit companies like Facebook. So um, always super helpful, Chris, to take a look at things with you. What are you um, paying attention to and watching right now? Oh, man. Um, I am paying attention to a lot of um, influencer culture stuff. There's a lot of changes in influencer culture and economy lately. Um there's a great article uh, from from The Verge or Wired, I don't know, The Verge, about um, the kind of democratization of, of the economy. And, you know, you remember the whole stock market thing earlier this year where, where mm-hmm. there was all this stuff going crazy on the stock market. There's a really great article written in The Verge uh, recently this past week. I linked to it in my newsletter, uh, the same new- newsletter of the one we just talked about, um, about how the Internet is really just leveling the playing field on investments and stock trading. And it's a really interesting – I've always been interested in investments. I don't have the risk tolerance to really get into it myself. Um, but, uh, in terms of, you know, like doing a bunch of amateur, you're like stock an investment trading. voyeur. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I have a guy <laughs> who, who helps me with all that stuff, but I don't have the guts to do it myself. So the article right. in, in the verge about how the internet's really helping people with that was really fascinating. So anyway, that's kind of what I've been reading. I love it. All right. That's Chris Martin. You can read what he's writing on his terms of service newsletter. It's the terms of service, uh, on Substack best place to find him. All right, Chris, thank you as always so much. Thanks. Have a good weekend. You too. We'll be right back. Hour one down, hour two coming up next. Where in the word are you today? This is a good day to read Isaiah chapter six. We'll be right back with another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.